0: This evening we return again after some interruption back to our consideration of the book of Ephesians and specifically to Ephesians chapter 4 and we will read the first 16 verses again of Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, Beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it? but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, For the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This evening we consider verses 7 through 10. I can read those again. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, I hope it is obvious to you that the text that we consider tonight, these verses, is closely related to and follows from the truth that has been set forth already in this chapter and also the calling the one great calling that is set before the church in light of that truth that truth to refresh your memory and even as we just read is that there is one church one body of our Lord Jesus Christ because that church is formed and fashioned and brought together by one Spirit. That's the great truth about the church. And because of that one great truth, there is one great calling of the church also set forth, namely to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and to do that with all lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love." And now our text builds upon that. There is something more that the Apostle has to say in relation to that truth about the oneness of the church and the calling to keep that oneness. That the text follows from and expands upon that great truth and calling is evident from the fact that the Apostle continues to speak to the church As one whole, he speaks to the church without interruption as the same church. Refers to the church as us, but unto every one of us. That us is the same us that is joined together in the Spirit, in the bond of peace. It is the same us that confesses one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The same us that has one hope of their calling, and the one, the same us that has that calling to keep the spirit of the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The same us that dwells and carries out that calling in lowliness of mind and meekness and long-suffering the text in the second place also speaks of us being given one single gift that shows also there is a connection to this passage and what is said previously the apostle speaks not of gifts here but gift in the singular The idea is, even as there is one church and one confession and one people, there is one union, so also there is one gift that is given to the church. And as we're going to see, the apostle here is developing that truth because he's leading up to what that one gift is for, what that one gift does. That one gift is not only related to the unity of the church, so that as one church we receive one gift, but the way that gift is given serves to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It serves to cause that church to grow up in that unity, which he will explain further in the chapter but right now he's setting that up it's also evident that there's something different being said that what he has to say is adding to this truth in a way that he's saying something different that's evident when the passage begins with the word but everything about the passage speaks about sameness speaks about oneness there is one in everything it speaks about unity so much so that there's even one gift but there's something about the giving of that gift that has to be noticed so he begins with the word but not now to make us think that what he has to say contradicts what's said before but he points out that it's something we might think would contradict what is said before. But there is something different about the giving of that gift. Something that the church must take note of. Because it has something very important to say, not only about the gift, but about the purpose and even the source of the giving of that gift. So he begins with that word, but. The thing that he adds and that he sets forth, and it is so important that he highlights it with that word, is that this one gift is apportioned to each individual person in a diverse measure. That's what he wants to bring to the church. And he wants to bring it to the church and highlight it because that shows the uniqueness and the true nature of this unity. It is not human unity. It is not man-based unity. It is not unity that we create, but it is created by the Spirit. We only keep it. And exactly because it's created by the Spirit, And exactly because although there is one church and many members, it is apportioned and measured to every individual person differently. And related to that, there is one thing that we must know. That that is not a threat to the unity of the church. That does not contradict the unity of the church but rather enhances and promotes it that is what shows this is not the unity of the world you see in the world unity is based on sameness if there is to be a unity of the human race it must be based on the fact that we are all the same males are the same as females the rich are the same as the poor Everything has to be the same. Distribution of money, distribution of gifts. That's the world's idea of how unity is made, created, and kept. But it is false, and it actually destroys true unity. Over against that is the church. We see here again in this passage the glory of the church the main theme of this book the glory of the church and now that everyone is given a measure of grace everyone given a measure of grace and we're going to notice in the first place the apportioned gift secondly the ascended source and finally the victorious purpose of the giving of that apportioned gift First, the apportioned gift, the measure of grace. We are concentrating now especially upon those words, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. As I pointed out in my introduction, the us there is the members of the church, even the true and right members of the church. The us there, negatively, therefore, is not every single person, every single person who goes to church or attends church, and certainly not every single individual of the human race as it is sometimes interpreted in other words the thing that is given the grace that is given is not a common grace that is given to all and every person both inside and outside the church in fact it's not even a grace common to every single person who calls themselves a member of the church but indeed it is common And it is something that is given to every single member of the body of Christ. Every single member who is united to one another and to our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that this is the way it is, is not my imposition upon the text, but comes right out of the text itself. First of all, consider that the us is once again obviously and clearly the same us that he has been talking to and about throughout the same book he does not change pronouns he does not change to whom he is addressing consider what he has said about that us in chapter one verses three through five he called the us the elect body of the ascended Christ. That's the us. In chapter 2, verse 11, he said about this us, that they were delivered or redeemed from sin and from death and from Satan. That formerly they were aliens of the kingdom of God. In chapter 2, verse 20, the us are those who are built upon the foundation of the apostles. In chapter 3, verses 9 and 15, he said of the us that they are a family in fellowship with the triune God. Even in this chapter that we read, verse 16, he says about this us that they are a body, that is fitly joined together, not only, but joined to our Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 5, he's going to say of this us, that it is the bride of our Lord Jesus Christ who loved that us and gave himself for that us. Then, if that were not enough evidence, there is, right in the text itself, that parenthetical statement. The one that's found in parentheses in verses 9 and 10 about the Lord who is ascended. And notice now, He ascended taking captive some men so that He can give gifts to others. There is right there, even in that parenthetical statement, a division among men that some receive one thing and others have something taken away or receive something else. Then, if that weren't enough, there is the examples found throughout the book and even in the passage that we read of the diversity of these gifts when he talks about apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. What I wish to bring to your attention tonight, even as we go on and apply this individually, is to point out, however, that the attention of the Apostle is especially drawn once again to a real local congregation of believers. Although it is true That what the Apostle says applies to every single member of the body of Jesus Christ. What he is saying, he is saying here about a particular congregation, and thus it applies also to the members of Trinity Protestant Reformed Church. To put it negatively, The Apostle is not saying what he has to say here about the church in the abstract, because an abstract church doesn't really exist. Nor is he talking about some ideal church, some church as it already exists on the world, in the world, perfected, already brought to its completion what it ought to be to be that should be evident when he goes on to talk about why this gift is given and it's given till we come in the unity of the faith it has to do with growing up from being a child to a full-grown adult it has to do with the growth of the whole body so that it's fitly joined together and compacted even edifies itself in love. It's really not even referring, you understand, therefore, to the church triumphant either. You see, an ideal church, a perfected church, as well as what we refer to as the church triumphant, has no need of such a gift of grace. It has especially now the church triumphant, already received that grace. It is in a certain sense already victorious and already brought to a certain perfection. So we must focus our attention upon what the apostle says, not to some ideal, some idealistic perfect church, an abstract church, or even the church already in heaven, but to ourselves in this church and in this church local congregation. Bring it up especially because again of that parenthetical statement the Apostle brings here. It's worth reminding ourselves from time to time that not only did Jesus descend from heaven even to the lowest parts of the earth, for the benefit of the church universal, for his entire body, but for a particular congregation, for a particular people, and particular members of that congregation. That should be brought up because it also has to do with the unity of the church as we're going to see. That this gift and the understanding of the giving of that gift and where it comes to serves the unity of the church, you see. This is a prime example of that. You see, if we don't have that understanding and we don't keep that clearly before our minds, then it's easy for us to disparage the local congregation, to minimize our membership there, to not think much, perhaps, of the local congregation, but only imagine to ourselves that these things that are said apply to the whole church, not really my church. But to do that is to disparage the Lord of this church, the one who descended for that church, who even descended to the lowest parts of the earth for that church. It is, in other words, to offend the groom of the bride. What the Apostle especially highlights here however, in spite of the fact that he's talking about the church, that he's talking about the church as a whole, that's the us, his emphasis is upon this gift of grace to each and every member of that church. And that gift that's given is grace. First of all, notice, as I said in the introduction, that there's one gift that may not be overlooked. It's not as if I receive one kind of gift, you receive another kind of gift. But essentially, there is one gift that is given to the church, and that gift is grace. Now we need to flesh that out. When we say that the church receives one gift, which gift is grace, what is that? What are we talking about? What is this grace? Is it, too, an abstraction? Is it simply a concept? Is it simply an idea, a notion, a thing? And the answer is no. In fact, you may say rightly and understand rightly that this one gift called grace is the gift of Christ himself. Christ is the grace of God and the manifestation of that grace. And one may say that there is one gift exactly because there is only one Christ. That's exactly why the Apostle puts it the way that he does in the passage. Notice, "...but unto every one of us is given grace." Notice, Now, according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Notice that. According to the measure of the gift of Christ. You would expect him to say, according to the measure of the gift of grace. Or even to say, according to the measure of the gift of grace, as it's apportioned or set out or given by Christ. He doesn't do that. He makes the grace virtually synonymous with Christ Himself. And He does that deliberately because He doesn't want us simply to focus upon this grace and its relationship to Christ this way. That there's Christ and He simply distributes grace, this thing called grace. And it's a thing other than He Himself. But he wants us to see that not only is Christ the distributor of this grace, it is He who measures it out. It is He who apportions it. It is He and He alone who gives it. It comes in and through Him, but He is that gift of grace. Hence, according to the measure of the gift of Christ. This should not surprise us especially as we go on in the book and the apostle fleshes this out. But already we should be able to see this. What is the greatest gift of God to the church? If you had to answer that question, what would you say? What is the greatest gift of God to the church? Grace? Grace? Christ and the answer is both because the greatest gift of God to the church is himself the greatest gift of God in Jesus Christ is the gift of himself in Jesus Christ why should this not surprise us because this relationship of the church to Jesus Christ is going to be likened not only to a body And the head and just think about that relationship and ask yourself about the relationship of the body to the head and the body especially in relationship to what it receives from the head it's not like there's something separate that courses through the body but the head is joined to the body, and is part of the body. They are one. But it's going to be called a marriage. The marriage of Christ and the church. And what is the greatest thing that any husband can give to his wife? Is it simply that he's gracious and kind? When we say that he gives his love to his wife, what are we talking about? And the answer is he gives himself in fact if he would imagine even that he can love his wife and be gracious to his wife without giving himself he's disillusioned that's just an imagination one cannot love one cannot show grace one cannot impart grace to another without really giving of oneself so this grace is christ Himself. And now, Christ gives Himself to us by giving us His Spirit. Especially now, as the parenthetical statement makes clear, the Spirit of the crucified and risen and now ascended Christ. Perhaps when you read that, and you read that parenthetical statement, you notice there was some connection to the ascension. But what's the connection of that to the gift? What we read is that he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts, plural, unto men. The point there is the apostle is taking note how it is that Christ gives himself and the connection to the spirit uniting the church together the idea is that Christ came down from heaven to earth even to the lowest parts of the earth he ascended he died was risen ascended and received something What he received was the Spirit of God himself as his own Spirit. And then he imparts that to the church. And imparting that Spirit, he imparts himself. Now it's called grace. Why? Why is it that the impartation of the Spirit of Christ, which is Christ himself, is called grace? Well, the emphasis in the passage is because it's truly a gift. You see, there is one thing about grace, and that is you cannot earn it. You cannot buy grace. You cannot purchase grace. You cannot earn grace. You cannot merit grace. Otherwise, it's not grace. Grace is always and simply given and really and truly given without regard to the person to whom it's given. In other words, they have not done anything to receive that grace. It's simply given. So that in the first place is why it's called grace. And understand that's why there are and have been battles in the church over grace. Because what you say about grace, you say about Christ. To imagine that you yourself can obtain grace without it being given, or that it's given based on something that you have done, something that obtains or merits or earns that grace, applies therefore to Christ himself, which fundamentally turns the entire gospel on its head. But there's more here. Grace, you see, in the Bible, and especially now as it's given to the church, and this is on the mind of the apostle, is not simply that it's grace because it's a gift. And it is a gift. Notice the emphasis upon that. It's the gift of Christ not only the gift of Christ and that it's the gift of Christ Himself, but it's the gift of Christ and that it comes from Christ. But there's something more here. And that more we can see by the mention of grace already in the book. And what you will notice is this grace is this mighty power, this glorious, mighty, rich power, That is operative in the church and makes the church what it is. You can follow along if you want, but already in the second verse of this book is the apostolic blessing of grace be to you. That is, this grace is a blessing. The grace itself is the blessing of God. If you jump ahead to verse 6 of chapter 1, we learn that it is a glorious grace. If you jump ahead just one verse to verse 7 of chapter 1, we learn that this grace is rich, that something is done according to the riches of His grace. This grace doesn't have simply one facet to it. It doesn't only do one thing. It's rich, multifaceted. It's glorious and beautiful and wonderful. And one thing that it does, according to verse 7, is by that grace we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. But is that all? No, it's a very rich Grace. If you go ahead to chapter 2 verse 5, we learn that by that grace, we are also quickened. We are raised from the dead. There is a little resurrection of us. Even when we were dead in sins, He hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Notice that. We are quickened by this grace. Go ahead, just one verse. We read again in chapter 2, verse 7, about the riches of His grace. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace. And here we see something else. In His kindness, this grace takes the form of kindness toward the church. In verse 8 of chapter 2, you all know, this grace saves us. By grace, ye are saved. (laughs) That's through faith, but notice it's by grace that one is saved. It's a gift then of power and a gift that comes with power apostle is going to go on in chapter 3 verse 7 as we considered that this was a grace given to him individually as an apostle. This grace was given to me he said. And it was given to him especially to minister and to minister the gospel to the Gentiles. And it's this grace that the apostle now is said is given to us and to every member of the church. And therein lies the emphasis. Grace is given to every one, every single one, every individual without exception who belongs to Jesus Christ. There is no member of the church. There is no individual who belongs to Jesus Christ that can say, I am without grace, To be without grace is to be without Christ. And to have Christ is to have grace. That's what he wants to impress upon us. Notice, the idea is not even that this grace is given to the church and then the church dispenses and apportions it to every individual member. Notice that in the passage there is a direct connection to every one and Christ Himself. Now I'm not denying here the truth that we all confess that there are means of grace and those means of grace are found only in the church. That Christ uses the church to dispense the measure of grace to each of us but that's not on the foreground here because the Apostle does want each of us to consider this point that to each and every one of us who belong to Christ that us is given this grace but the Apostle says but according to the measure of the gift of Christ. What does he mean by that? What he means to say, and what this is saying very specifically, is this. Christ, however, does not apportion that grace in equal quantity to each and every one of us. There is, in other words, a diversity here in this grace. Although this grace is one, and although this grace is essentially Christ, so that one that has this grace has Christ, it comes in a diversity of forms. It comes in a diversity of times. It comes in a diversity of quantity. All these things he means by that statement. Now he's going to give an example of that when he mentions simply following this that exactly because of this for the perfecting of the saints he gave the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body he gave some apostles some prophets some evangelists some teachers you see there there those are all different offices given at different times in the church with different work and he picks that one because that one was most obvious but one can apply that principle to all the different various forms of that grace in its quantity. For example, it would include the fact that the Gentiles are being called by the apostle into the church. It includes the fact that grace is related to sin. You see, it's grace that conquers sin. It's grace that is victorious over sin. It is grace that defeats sin. And therefore, the greater the sin, the greater the grace. Is there anyone here that would dispute the great, great grace that even the apostle himself recognizes was shown and given to him because of who he was? Not just another depraved sinner on the earth, but a Pharisee who thought he was saved by his own works and who persecuted the church, was responsible for the death of members of that church. You see, a diversity of grace to each of the members, rich, rich according to each of our circumstances, according to our life, according to our own particular sins and sinfulness, and that is the emphasis of the passage. Now, am not going to spend more time on the diversity of it as such. I assume you can draw your own examples of that, how that's expressed in our families or in our schools or in the church or various offices, how it operates in the church in various various ways but here's the real point it's distributed that way deliberately and it's distributed that way deliberately for the benefit of the church even to promote and grow the church in that unity in other words it's used to strengthen that bond of unity it's given that way to even make it. It's part of that binding of the church together in the spirit of the bond of peace. And that's brought out because we would imagine that's a threat. Various differing gifts and offices and measures of grace. Why that's not unity. That's a threat to unity. And don't Imagine that we are too far from that. Oh, how easily we become jealous over the grace of God shown in others or imparted to others. This is what's behind the movement that women should hold office in the church. Unless that's done, there's some injustice, some unrighteousness that when God requires for example submission of one to another whether it's a child to a parent or whether it's a wife to a husband or even a husband to his employer that something unjust is there something's not right that one member of the congregation perhaps possesses more understanding and knowledge in the Word of God, or even wealth, that there's something wrong there. It's a threat, this diversity, but it's not. It's the exact opposite. As the Apostle is going to say, it's for the perfecting of the saints. It's done that way till we all come in the unity of the faith. I don't often quote others off the pulpit, but I'm going to quote John Kelvin here because, like so often, he nails this text. He understands what it's getting at at its very root. This text, he says, describes the manner in which God establishes and preserves among us a mutual relation that is unity. No member of the body of Christ is endowed with such perfection as to be able, without the assistance of others, to supply his own necessities. He's noticing the idea that God doesn't even give to us the grace that we need directly to us. But God may give To others the grace that we need so that we rely upon others. Are you getting it? So, he goes on to say, a certain proportion is allotted to each, and it is only by communicating with each other that we enjoy what is sufficient for maintaining our respective places in the body. This text may be summed up this way. On no one has God bestowed all things. Each has received a certain measure. Being thus dependent on each other, they find it necessary to throw their individual gifts into the common stock and thus to render mutual aid. Let me put that in common language. How is it that this dispensing of grace this way serves to the unity of the church? Because it is our pride to imagine that the grace of God concerns only me. That God gives to me what I need and gives it to me directly. And that quickly turns into the fact that grace even is for the benefit of me. It's all about me. And that's not grace. God gives to each member different measures of grace so that we learn that we need each other, so that we learn to communicate with each other, so that we remain humble. Remember what he said about keeping the Spirit, keeping the bond of the Spirit. Remember what he said about that? That must be done with lowliness and meekness and long-suffering. Where does that come from? From the understanding not only that what's given to me is grace, but even that I need you and you need me to receive the grace that we need for our life. That is, we need one another. That is, no one may live in the church isolated, independent, aloof from the other. That's what destroys a body. That's what destroys the church. That's what divides and creates schism in the church. But what brings unity and what promotes unity and what keeps unity is the very dependence we have on each other and especially the grace, the measure of grace that we ourselves lack, but that is provided to another. And if you doubt that, simply go on to the example that he gives of apostles. Where would each of us be? Where would the church be? What would we have for a Bible if God had not given to us His grace Through apostles. He didn't give to you and to me direct revelation. He didn't write Ephesians directly to you in your head. But He gave it to you through a means. Through others. So that you rely upon that. And you have appreciation for that. This is what unifies the church, not only today, not only in this building, not only us together, but with the church of all ages. We understand that we didn't come to our understanding of the truth ourselves, but it was handed to us. This is where we have our appreciation for the creeds or decisions of the churches made in the past. You see what the Apostle is getting at? Now, why this is has to do with the Source. Namely, the Ascended Source. And here I must be brief. There's something very profound here that I don't want you to misunderstand, but it is profound and it is related to the very truth of God himself there is something here that is a reflection of the very life of God the very unity of life in God and that has to do with its being given then to us through Christ even the ascended Christ now That's emphasized when the Apostle here quotes a portion of Psalm 68, verse 18. And he's showing what the type was and giving us further explanation here. What's being quoted here, that he ascended on high and about gifts unto men, is a quote from Psalm 68 where David is referring to his victories and particularly now his victory over the Philistines and that victory as it culminated, especially in the bringing of the ark back from the land of the Philistines and particularly now from some farmer's barn back to the heights of Jerusalem, into the tabernacle and eventually into the temple itself that Solomon would build. David sees that and he writes about that and he sees himself even as a type. What's being talked about there is a grand victory over one's enemies. And a grand victory that was typified in a procession, a procession of the ark. God being with them in that ark and all the spoils of victory and the king riding into his city. And he shows there that he has made captivity captive. That is, he has taken the enemies that have held his people in bondage, those who oppress them, those who hurt them, and he makes them captive, thus freeing his people. And along with that, there is a distribution of the spoils of war. Those things stolen or taken by the enemy those glorious riches in the possession of the enemy are taken away and given to the people. Now even David already knew that he himself was but a type when in that psalm he writes, he does not write about himself, but he gives the credit to those victories. He gives the credit to that victory over the Philistines and the return of the ark And the presence of God with them now in Jerusalem to God. And why the apostle seizes upon this is because that ark, you will recall, was located in one man's barn. And that wasn't right. That wasn't proper. That man was blessed. That man prospered. It was not the right place for that ark to be. It had to be among the people. It had to be in the temple for the benefit and the blessedness of all the people. And what David sees in types and shadows, the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, sees clearly is our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he adds what he does in parentheses. That's not in the psalm. Paul, by inspiration, showing the great grace of God given to him for our benefit is he understands that if this Lord that David is talking about is Jesus Christ and he ascends that means he first descended he descended to earth and not only that he descended to earth but he descended to the lowest parts of the earth that is hell itself he entered into the grave he entered into hell it has reference to the cross of Jesus Christ, has reference to his resurrection, and then his ascension, and then out of that, he distributes his spirit. He gives gifts unto men. That's why he even changes that word receives to gives. Why does the apostle bring this up? Because it teaches us more about the character and nature of that diverse grace given to us what is it well the apostle is going to explain it further as we go on notice again remember that we've entered into the practical section and the apostle is explaining now what's behind the practice what's behind what's the power of it why is it necessary why should we live this way and it has to do with the nature of the grace that's dispensed It is a victorious grace. It's the grace of our Lord who conquered His enemies. Who destroyed His enemies. Who took control of them. And the gifts that He gives are related to that. That is, they are freedom. They are liberty. They are freedom and liberty from death. From sin. From the dominion of sin. And the fear of death. They are freedom from the curse of the law. They are, in other words, the ability to will and do the good according to God. That is the victorious purpose. You see, there's a connection between this gift of grace, our life in the church, and our unity. And we're going to explore that further as we go through this book. But consider now that to each of us is given grace, a measure of grace for the benefit and purpose of the church. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord our God, we thank thee for the gift. The Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, that in that Spirit we are joined together, such that we even need one another, and we appreciate one another, and we may live humbly before one another. That in lowliness and long suffering and meekness, we may endeavor to keep that unity, and together we may grow up into the perfect man. O Lord our God, ever give us that grace. Continue to give us that grace in our need, and our needs not only personally, but the needs of one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.